1: All right, we've started. Okay, today is uh, June 10th, 2022, another podcast for the New Books Network. And today we're going to be talking about Hollywood. And we're going to have Justin Gutro. I hope I pronounced that correctly, to tell us about a book he wrote recently uh, called The Last Word, subtitled The Hollywood Novel and the Studio System. So, how are you doing, Justin? It's uh, just about one o'clock where we both are. You're up in Merced, California, and I'm in Riverside, California. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, this is going to be a good podcast because a lot of people have read the novels that you've written about. And, of course, a lot of people have also seen the, the movie adaptations of these novels. So it should be a fun uh, podcast to, uh, to, to have. I've always had an interest in Hollywood, not just because I live out here in Southern California, but because I like movies and I like novels and I like uh, learning about how a big studio system works and then how, in the case of Hollywood, how the system worked and then how it failed and how it's been rebuilt um, to what we see today. But before we get there, tell me a little bit about yourself, Justin, that is to say where you're from, where you went to school and where you're teaching now. Sure.
0: So uh, I am born and raised in Southern California. Uh, I went to school at UC Riverside uh, for my undergrad and grad uh, chapters. And so my wife and I both got our PhDs at UC Riverside, and we are now both teaching for the Merit Writing Program at UC Merced.
1: Tell me a little bit about the Merit Writing Program. Merit
0: writing program, sure. Um, um, let's see here. Where where do I begin? So we are we are a program that teaches, you know, primarily general education courses uh, for the first year students. But we are we also pride ourselves in teaching um, upper division courses that focus specifically on writing in a particular discipline. So, for instance, I teach a class called Writing for Psychology. Um, for psychology majors, primarily, so it's a it's a cool it's a cool program, and it's a, and it's different from other places where I've taught. Um, as writing studies is becoming more and more of a uh, its own discipline, I suppose at the university level.
1: Now there are, <clears throat> if I remember right, there are ten campuses of the University of California system. Do all ten have the merit? Writing program that you're describing? No, the merit writing program is is specific. I mean,
0: that the name name at least is specific to UC Merced. But for instance, uh, you know, at UC Riverside, their writing program, when I was there, was was a kind of branch of the English department, and that's not the way it's run here at UC Merced. It's its own thing, not not attached to the English department.
1: <laughs> and what kind of students do you have? Um, I have students. I think.
0: Ninety-nine percent of UC Merced students come from California, and it used to be when when I started back, I think it was 2015. Uh, it was a split; it was almost an even split between um, SoCal students and NorCal students, with maybe one or two students per class being from the Central Valley. But now um, it's great to see that it's more, it's more evenly divided to where it's about a third SoCal, a third Central Valley, and a, uh, a third NorCal students.
1: Well, I have to say that I envy you as a teacher of writing because of all the different things I've done in my so-called career, teaching English back almost 45 years ago at the University of Connecticut when I was in the graduate program there, um, some of the fondest memories of my career have been related to those uh, teaching years. All right. So one reason I wanted to uh, have you on the podcast, Justin, is that your book is um, or grew out of a dissertation that you wrote. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And you had spectacular success because your book, your adapted dissertation, is published by the Oxford University Press, which is uh, a pretty good press to be published by. Thank you. So you Thank can you. say <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> no. Yes, I agree. Oxford University
1: Press. Uh, Oxford University Press is fantastic. I agree. All right. Later on in the podcast, I'll ask you, after we talk about the book, the contents of the book, I'll ask you how it happened that you took your dissertation and turned it into uh, a manuscript that Oxford said, yes, we have to publish this. So let's talk first about your book. What are the, um, uh, What's the scope of the study that you engaged in that is both subject area and years? What's the scope of the study?
0: um okay so let's start with the years um really it picks up the focus uh it goes from about 1920 the 1920s through the 1950s and the intro deals with a little bit before that and the book's conclusion deals a little bit uh after that uh and the the focus of it is really um what role the so-called Hollywood novel played during the reign of the studio system. Um, and so for folks who don't know, the way I like to describe it, the Hollywood novel, people say, well, what is that? And the way I think about it, just plain and simple, is that uh, the Hollywood novel uh, is is a literary genre uh, written by people who are in Hollywood, and they are writing about Hollywood. So that's the scope, you know, that's the sneak peek.
1: (laughs) And and sometimes the Hollywood genre fits into other genres, such as uh, um, the private eye novel, for instance. Yep. Okay. So if you were to uh, give me the short version, which means a few minutes, short version of the argument of the book what would it be
0: yeah so thanks i'm I'm a little bit rusty the book came out almost almost two years ago so uh bear with me here but um basically the argument beginning and there's a reason it begins the book begins in the 1920s but uh 1920s is the moment when hollywood was becoming you know the film industry was 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 taking off and as as soon as it was gaining momentum there were a series of scandals uh that happened that really threatened um threatened hollywood's image you know uh threatened threatened the film industry from becoming a business uh and or for continuing as a business and so there was this way that the film industry that the studios consolidated uh and and work together to ensure that they were putting their best foot forward. That that their public relations uh, was organized to a point where you know they would no longer they would no longer have to worry about being shut down by by the various moral groups across the country, the protesters and things, the religious groups and things like that. So it starts there, uh, and so, and that's all a long way of saying that um, there was really limited, very limited ways to actually talk about Hollywood openly. Um, So for instance, one of the things that happens is that um, the studios start controlling, you know, who gets to interview their stars, who gets to come into the studios, who gets access to this behind the scenes look. Um, And as a result of that, there is all kinds of stuff that's, you know, that we read about all the time now, and sometimes even see, like at the uh, Oscar ceremony this year. Uh, But, you know, we, uh, from the 20s through the 50s, there, there was this kind of way that the ugly side or the dark side of the film industry wasn't really allowed to be talked about. And so my art, Argument is that uh, the Hollywood novel uh, was really the the almost the exclusive place where where writers could offer this insider perspective that was a little more critical than what uh, viewers and readers were seeing either in newspapers or magazines uh, or or uh, Hollywood's own depictions of itself in movies. Right, so. Uh, Holly, so-called Hollywood-on-Hollywood Hollywood movies.
1: Okay. Well, today, I think it's fair to say that you know, with the exception of perhaps some fringe groups, we all love Hollywood. We love the movies. We love the television. It wasn't necessarily true when Hollywood started up with films that the society embraced what was going on in the films. What kind of resistance did Hollywood have both as an art firm did films have as an art form, and did Hollywood have as a um, corporate de- de- identity? That's what sure. I'm heard. say, stumbling over it.
0: Uh, sure, so yeah, in my first chapter, I talk a little bit about this, um, <clears> but really, you know, and, and there's there's tons of great books written about this. Um, uh, Thomas Doherty writes, writes a lot about this. Um, um, the early days, is particularly when the film industry moved uh, moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, um, you know, movies did not have the best reputation. So for starters, you know it wasn't seen as a high art form. Uh, uh, acting in movies was not seen as a skillful profession. Um, what else? Uh, you know when 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 the movies come to Los Angeles, the people, people associated with the movies were called movies, and nobody liked them, right uh, the the citizens, the citizens who were already in LA. No one, no one liked them, right? Uh, as they were filming in their streets and things like that. So, by and large, there was this kind of negative reputation associated with with the movies and those who participated in them. Um, and then, as as things, you know, as as the studios started to establish themselves in that area, uh, there was just this bad party reputation too. And so um, uh, some people, you hear about these parties in the Hollywood Hills, these, these, uh, the wild, the wild behavior that was happening and how that was seen as a, a blemish on the otherwise beautiful landscape.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Hollywood films, in the very beginning at least, were seen as a, a kind of corrupting influence on the right. public. And there was right. resistance to that, so there were even commissions set up to try to regulate movies. What what were they about? Yeah, so um,
0: um, this idea that, that, you know, similar to the way um, food is regulated to not get to not get us sick, Um, um, there was this real push to say that um, we might need to regulate film in the same way. So, you know, to not not get us sick spiritually or morally. And so there's this kind of ongoing battle that I talk about in chapter one that really comes to a head um, when uh, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, is is convicted of the rape and murder of the so-called extra girl, Virginia Rappé, and um, that's the moment when, and that's why chapter one is called Welcome, Will Hayes. Uh, the film industry invites someone from, you know, who is politically, um, you know, politically, knows what he's doing politically from Washington, D.C., and that, his name is Will Hayes. And in a, in a lot of ways, Will Hayes is the the star of my book. So they used Will Hayes as a way to as a way to you know uh, make sure that that no one was going to regulate them on a federal level.
1: And how did he do this?
0: How did he do this? He came together. He came together with the studio heads and. Um, the first thing he did was try to kind of come up with a list of, you know, it was called the do's and don'ts of of what you could do on film, and this was really an early version of what would later become the production code uh, in the 1930s, s, um, which doesn't become officially is uh, does, doesn't become officially regulated until nineteen thirty four when Joseph Breen comes in, but basically right. On, on the ground, the practical thing was to say, here are, here's a set of rules that you need to follow if you want your movie to be made. And if you don't follow these rules, then you'll get in trouble. Uh, but that wasn't really an official, um, that wasn't, again, that wasn't really an officially established thing until 1934 when the Production Code Administration takes off.
1: But well, what do these regulators worry about? Was it sex on the uh, screen or was it... Uh... Subversive conversations was it communism? What did they worry about? Well, sex—I mean, sex and violence, right? That's a big thing. But if you get
0: if you get into the nitty gritty, you start to see that the production code is um, is pretty homophobic um, um, and things like that. Um, they they. There's other stuff written to to say that the production code was working in the interests of all the big businesses uh, in the country and things like so. There there's a lot of stuff, right? Um, uh, but yeah, sex, alcohol, violence, all the fun stuff we think of now. Uh, that was that. Those were those were the big ones, and they were the big ones because uh, the people who were protesting the movies they saw those as the lar- the the bit the, the serious threats to. To viewers, Um, the other thing Will Hayes did that that I that I think is uh, really interesting that I make a lot of in the book is he he regulates the content he he pushes to regulate the content on screen, but at the same time he's working to clean up Hollywood off screen. Um, So you get things like the central casting agency. Uh, As I said earlier, you start to see that studios slowly begin closing their gates. Uh, They and they all need a reporters need a so-called haze card to access to access the studio lots and interview the stars And if someone wrote a bad article or an an unflattering article their haze card would be revoked, right? So all these methods of trying to uh, make Hollywood cleaner both on-screen and off-screen
1: well these regulators uh, are thinking that if the films are not regulated the way they want them to be regulated. These corrupting influences are going to affect, transform perhaps even, the the uh, the public. But something else is going on at the same time, which is once the studio system gets up and running, um, it becomes itself a corrupting influence over or on those who work there. And we have a bunch of novels that come out that talk about life working in... Um, the studio system, perhaps the best known, the one that I first came across, was Bud Schulberg's "What Makes Sammy Run." Is that a fair way of looking at it? That
0: a fair way in that these novels are about studio life. Yes. Yeah, I think so, and and also life for those who can't access studio life. It's a pretty cynical novel, isn't it? What makes Sammy run? Yes. Yeah, it's it's cynical. And also I would I would add that maybe a little bit um I mean Bud Schulberg is is the son of 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 big movie movie BP Schulberg, right? The big movie guy. So um in some ways when I read um I read What Makes Sammy Run early on. I think I read it was one of the like like you, I think it was one of the first Hollywood novels I read. Um and we can keep talking about it if you want, but one thing I'll say for now is that I think I think it might not be as groundbreaking as Bud Schulberg thought it was.
1: <laughs> well, one reason I bring it up is that um, the edition that I have is the modern library edition. It's uh-huh. such a uh, important book in the American canon that it's in the modern library, published by Random House. So lots and lots of people read this book, which must have given the Hollywood executives fits because mm-hmm. the worst side of Hollywood is being portrayed rather graphically, realistically. How did Hollywood itself respond to the book? Well,
0: I mean, one, the only of it, the only information I have is, is the afterword um, to Schulberg's book. And according, according to Schulberg and you know, he, he's obviously very proud of himself for writing such a book. Uh, but, you know, the typical response was that studio heads were pissed off at this kind of thing. And in his case, uh, in part, his case was a, was a unique one because he actually was, you know, he was the son of a movie executive. Um, and so, so in a lot of, you know, according to his afterward, it says, it says something like, you know, send, you know, Louis B. Mayer or someone like that was saying, you get this get this bud Schulberg out of town and then his dad says but he's he's from here where is he gonna go <laughs> so um um you know like i said i i know a lot of people like that book a lot but i um we could talk more about why i don't think it's as, as groundbreaking as 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 it thinks it is but that was the reaction that i know of
1: well um what i'm getting at in part is how working in the movies was a corrupting influence on those people um, doing the work. They talk about how they have idealism in their uh, art before they go to Hollywood and Hollywood simply takes it away from them, forces them to do things they don't want to do. We Uh have famous examples of writers like William Faulkner going to Hollywood and really struggling with the demands of uh, of the industry. Sure. Not surprisingly, a number of big-name writers um, wrote about their experiences. Right. So people like Nathaniel West, Raymond Chandler, Mm -hmm. wrote about uh, their time in Hollywood in The Day of the Locust and The Big Sleep, have really compelling depictions of the Hollywood world. Mm -hmm. How did the industry respond to those books?
0: So yeah that's thank you for asking that that's um i talk about this uh in my fourth chapter i talk about those two books in particular and what's interesting is um typically not you know not surprisingly studios did not like um did not like the hollywood novel um some of them and let me also just say there were there were two kinds i i try to classify two kinds there was the kind of promotional Hollywood novel that the studios just loved and loved, and and those would often be serialized in fan magazines or automatically be made and you know adapted into a film. And the other branch, the other the other kind of Hollywood novel were those that were subversive that that tried to that were actively engaged in subverting the studio's promotional image of itself, both on and off screen. And so, um, um, when it comes to the day of the locust and the big sleep one thing that's interesting is the day of the locust by the way i think is the first hollywood novel i ever came to um and then i think i read what makes sammy run but the day of the locust that came from a very uh even and i've read that so many times and every time i read it i'm reminded it comes from a very angry place i i think um um, because Nathaniel West is is in Hollywood and he's writing it, um, um, and he's kind of having some, you know, some trouble around town, and he's doing okay for himself, but he, he he hopes that the Day of the Locust will will give him enough success so he doesn't have to write for the movies anymore. And of course, um, it's kind of a flop when it comes out. Uh, and Bud Schulberg also talks about this in his afterward. But it's kind of a flop and so then he has to kind of come crawling back to the studios to keep working um and it's i don't talk about this in the book but to answer your question how did they react Uh, there was there was this little this little anecdote that i came across in nathaniel west's biography um um where it talks about how he actually had to he is I can't re- remember it very well, but he actually went and tried to promote it. Universal Studios, I think, tried to help him promote the Day of the Locust, which is kind of backwards, right? You wouldn't expect something like that, but um, um, you know, I think there's also a reason that it didn't take. It took it took the studios until 1975 to actually adapt the Day of the Locust. So, um, yeah, I think by that point, studios were just kind of shaking their heads at this kind of at this kind of work but they they have the last word so to speak because nathaniel west had to keep working for the studios um so there's that and then what's interesting to answer your question about the big sleep um by that point raymond chandler was not working for the studios and so i talk a little bit about this in in my book but um it's really the big sleep that propels him you know, into, into, um, movie work. It's what gets him on the radar. Um, uh, what ultimately makes him what it's his ticket into movie writing in some ways. So it's, it's almost like they, they had, there was a very opposite. There was a, you know, these two, these two that I put
1: together had a very, had a very different fates. Can you jump ahead? And I know this isn't part of your book, but can you jump ahead to say the time from 1970 on, to the, to the present time. How does Hollywood feel now about having its, uh, underside, its darker side revealed in both movies and novels? Yeah. Yeah. So one way I like to look at
0: it, one way I like to take the temperature of this kind of thing is by looking at, um, the Oscars and what gets nominated and you know, what gets, what gets considered, um, as, as, Serious art, as the Oscars define it. So there's a trend, and I'm not the first person to say this. I, I wrote, I wrote a little bit about this for last year's Oscars when when the movie Mank was was nominated. Um, and there seems to be a trend, even with movies like The Artists that celebrate Hollywood. That uh, it's still kind of the case where <laughs> where where movies um, that that are showing some kind of ugly side are always kind of snubbed right and so so it's much more open now for reasons i talk about in the book it's it's much more open with movies like sunset boulevard that was kind of a turning point in in terms of what film critical filmmakers could get away with but now it's still i would venture to say it's still those movies that that pat hollywood on the back those that's the stuff that wins right um um that's the stuff that really gets that that gets recognized at, at their respective Oscar ceremonies and things like that. As far as novels about Hollywood, um, that's something we could, we could probably talk about all day because, um, I end my book on that, that very question of what's the point after a movie like sunset Boulevard, where, where Hollywood can now openly critique itself in a way that it couldn't before, What's the point of the hollywood novel if a if a film could could do it now um and therefore have a much wider reception and viewership and
1: things like that? well, do you have an answer to the question you posed? Why do they matter
0: um well um kind of and and my answer is they don't really they stop they start i'm sorry they stop mattering a whole lot less after after the that you know the nineteen fifties, where where Hollywood starts to openly examine its its you know its ugly side, so that there are a lot of novels that still come out for sure, but they're not as subversive because the, the movies are already already doing it. I see you at your bookshelf there, and I'm anxiously wondering what you're getting.
1: I'm trying to think of his name, um, Michael.
0: Michael Tolkien.
1: Yes. Yes, I uh-huh. read three or four of his novels, and uh, pretty good critique of, of Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, one of them, I think, was made into a movie. Um, yeah, by... The Player. The Player, yes, yes. So that was the film that was directed by Altman, right? Correct, yeah. And, and what... Everyone Under the Sun giving a right. uh, guest starring spot.
0: Right, 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 yeah. And so one thing, one thing that you notice about, and I mentioned The Player in my conclusion, but one thing you notice about those movies... Uh, Played it as it lays, uh, the player. Um, um, those movies, you know, the, the novels certainly are, are critical of Hollywood. But then notice what happens. Um, guess who gets a screenplay credit uh, on the film adaptations? The authors of those novels, right? And so, and so that's that's one thing that starts to happen is that these these novels that are critical um, are kind of early early, you know, their early versions of what what becomes adapted into a movie. Um, and so that's part of what I'm talking about in the book, how that the distinction there is really it really goes away after the collapse of the studio system and things like that. And film gains this critical capacity that it did not have during, you know, from the 1920s, you know, through, through the 1950s.
1: A cynic might say that Hollywood executives wouldn't care at all whether films that they're green-lighting or novels that they uh, see are critical of Hollywood because all they care about is getting yeah. tickets sold, yeah. books yeah. sold. Yeah. Um, what about other countries like France and England? Do they have a similar relationship between novels about films and films themselves? Um, My impression is that there's nothing like Hollywood any place in the world, with the exception perhaps of India. Nice. Yeah, I honestly, I'm going to be totally candid here and just say, I,
0: I don't know. I don't know a lot about I don't know a lot about uh the film industries in those other countries. Um, But I do think it all boils back to this, this moral code and 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 that that kind of thing that might be might be unique to the United States, but I can't I can't answer. I can't give you a knowledgeable answer about
1: that. Because so I, I I've i noticed that uh, I've seen maybe half a dozen French films that are films within films, mm-hmm. making the film within the making of the film. Um, what are your favorite uh, novels of the last two or three decades when it comes to Hollywood? And then I'll ask you your favorite novels from the time you wrote about. <laughs> My favorite? Well, I think I think it's
0: I got to say, I think it's kind of one and the same. I can't I can't divide those. Um, um, I, I haven't read a whole lot of novels from the past two or three decades. Uh, I think the player, you know, all will play it as it lays. And that's not that that's outside of the time range you're discussing. But those kinds of novels play it as it lays the player. I mean, those those are great novels. And I really enjoyed reading them. Um, but I think my one thing that's interesting is like there's so many novels to choose from during the time I'm writing my book or, or in that in that. 20s through 50s range because there were just more of them. There were more of them being written because of that, of that exclusive place of the Hollywood novel being able to offer this perspective that wasn't available elsewhere. Um, so I think that, I mean, we could, talk, we could talk more about your second question, but I honestly, there's not a whole lot from the past two or three decades where I would say, you know, my answer to that is very short compared to your second question. And
1: what's the answer to the second question? Um, but it, well, let me put it differently. If you yeah. could direct the reader, the audience, to a novel or two from the 20s to the 50s, that period you're, you're writing about, that uh-huh. really uh, exemplify what you're talking about, what would those novels be? Okay, that's that's a solid question. Give me a second. I
0: don't want to say. I don't want to give the um the obvious answer. I don't want to say something like Dave the Locust because that's the obvious answer and. So give me a second here. One, I'll I'll start with the novel Death in a Bowl by Ral Whitfield. I think that is, that is a very underrated novel um, um, that no one knows about anymore.
1: When did that come Um, out?
0: that one came out um 19 it was serialized in black mask magazine and i think the serialization started in 1929 through 191930 and then i think it was published as a book in 1931 but that's one of my favorites and that prefigures people like raymond chandler and and uh you know marlowe and and those kinds of literary Icons, I would call them. Uh, Before that, I think the other novel I would point people to, I really, really love in chapter two, I talk about Minnie Flynn and the Skyrocket. And for whatever reason, it's funny, if you go and this is when
1: when I was in grad school. Justin, let me just stop you. Those are two different novels, right? Correct, correct. The I mean, way well, you said it suggests that it's all one title. So Yeah, any- sorry about that. Is one, any- and the Skyrocket is another that you talk actually quite a bit about in that chapter.
0: Correct, yeah. And so um and the reason I kind of bring them up together is because in my mind you 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 have to you kind of have to read them together. They were written by uh, you know, almost two best friends and um they were re- published the same year, and they're talking about very similar issues of of women in the film industry um, and talking about creepy studio heads and things like that. And if you, one thing that's interesting, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was in grad school, I would try to get my hands on these novels because sometimes interlibrary loan, just you couldn't find them. Um, Thankfully, I could get Minnie Flynn, but if I wanted to own a copy, it was like $500 on eBay um, versus the Skyrocket, uh, I think that cost me like $10 on eBay. <laughs> I don't know how these values are determined, but to me, those are very, very similar novels uh, that should be read. You know, I couldn't choose one. They have to kind of be read together for uh, for a more rounded out picture of, of the early 1920s.
1: All right. Um Let's talk more about you and how this book came about. When did you decide in your graduate education that this was an area that you wanted to write about for your dissertation?
0: Yeah, so I think I came into grad school always knowing that I wanted to write about Hollywood in some way. I, when I first got to, you know, I was born and raised in Southern California, like I said, and so I've always been fascinated just on a personal level with The movies and movie production i have friends who who went off and you know are are in the biz and um so i've always had that connection to it when i first got to grad school um i knew i wanted to pursue american literature as my primary field and i was always kind of afraid to talk about you know to kind of like admit that i wanted to do something hollywood related not just not just like film related but also like hollywood specifically
1: hollywood is a place so you did not um, want to present yourself as a cliche is what you're saying
0: <laughs> right you're right yeah, yeah yeah and so you know I was, I was sitting in these grad seminars and and any chance i could i would i would do a research project that was that tied that in somehow right that tied those interests in somehow um and so i've always i mean to answer your question I've, i always knew that I wanted to pursue. I just didn't know what shape it would take or how it would look. Uh, and then I came across, you know, hey, the Hollywood novel, it's, it's, it's about Hollywood. It's, it's, you know, literature. Here I go. I'm going to pursue this. And thankfully, I had I had, you know, the mentors to support me and to help me feel like my ideas mattered.
1: Well, that was going to be my next question. Did you get any resistance from uh, advisors about the subject matter? yes i got a
0: little bit of resistance um um you know people people would challenge me in very productive ways but they would they would say things like well okay you know but why the hollywood novel where how do we even define what the hollywood novel is and where do you draw the lines you know and so very early on i had to determine you know why why i was doing this kind of work and Through my research, I just kept coming back to this idea that these novels were doing something, even even if we don't know them now, even though they're not part of any canon, several of the novels I talk about in their day, they were really they were really doing some critical work that helps us understand, um, you know, the history of the film industry.
1: So you write your dissertation it's accepted and then a light bulb goes off in your head saying, maybe I can sell this. Is that the way it worked, kind of. I,
0: I don't know if I was always that confident with selling it. Um, but what I do know is uh, my wife right out right after grad school, my wife got a visiting professor job uh, for the year in Boulder, Colorado. And so, bear with me for a minute here. I'm going to answer your question. But we so we moved to Boulder, Colorado. It was my first time living outside of Southern California, and oh my, what a different what a different atmosphere Boulder, Colorado is. ten uh, thousand feet What's
1: that? Ten thousand feet
0: Yeah, yeah. and so I and I was working, you know, I was hired for their writing program um, um, on on their campus, and you know. I was just very, very homesick. Very, very quickly did I realize that this was not, this was not a place where I felt at home. Um, and so one thing I did when I felt like I really was, was not in control of my profession or, you know, frankly, even, even my life in some ways, I would start revise, I would come back to the dissertation. I would start, you know, opening up, opening it up again and and revising parts and really just kind of coming back to it to a point where it was kind of it was kind of a friend it was a companion um, it was my way it was my way back to southern california at least in my in my head so um so that is that's where i started really revising it anytime i felt down you know i would i would work
1: on that uh in well, let between me you, let, let me ask you this how does the book that i read differ mm-hmm. from the dissertation and how did you go about making those changes yeah so there's a, that's a big
0: question i think the big the big um the the most practical answer is to say chapter 1 welcome will hayes that was completely that's a new that's a brand new chapter and thank goodness thank goodness it's there because it really helps frame everything so that that chapter is brand new the other chapters are um very heavily revised so to a point where my chapter on film noir i'm essentially arguing the opposite of what i was arguing in my dissertation (laughs) so the dissertation argued you know that film noir is is the moment when when the hollywood novel gets kind of shrink wrapped in this kind of you know it, it's it's sugar coated and and therefore dead <laughs> but uh but the book kind of argues that film noir is much more critical than i gave it credit for in the dissertation so those those i mean aside from a ton of revising and and things like that those are the major changes
1: so how did you end up with oxford did you send out lots of letters or did you think ah oxford is the place for me so i
0: Once my wife and I moved to Merced, I would spend, she, we were working on opposite ends of the clock. I had, I had night classes and she had morning classes. And one thing similar to what I was doing in Boulder is I was just, to make myself feel more in control of things when they felt kind of rocky, I would just start emailing uh, editors about my book. And I would put, I put together a book proposal, which took me a really long time. Um, And at this point, I didn't have any, confidence, um, or at least because it was my first book and I didn't quite know what I was doing, I had no idea what to expect. And so um, I would get these rejection letters um, or rejection emails, but then a couple of university presses started to indicate that they were interested, which kind of gave me a boost. And so then I I started contacting other presses and um, Norm Hershey at Oxford University Press is a kind of pro with responding to emails within minutes. <laughs> and so and so he, you know, that's that I think it was like the morning of I sent him the email proposing my book and by the time my wife was home from teaching I I told her, "Hey, I got a response from Oxford." And the rest is history.
1: And what about the um, production of the book itself? How long did it actually take you to go from that manuscript that you had revised? To mm-hmm. the book coming out.
0: Ooh, that's a that's a good things are kind of a blur because that's when in between that time is when my first daughter was born. So let's see, I submitted it. I submitted it just after my daughter was born in January of twenty twenty, and it came out it came out officially in October of twenty twenty. That's when that's when I had the book in my hands.
1: So how did that feel when you had it in your hands? Uh you ever seen the
0: movie back to the future? Oh sure. You know that that last scene when George McFly is holding his first novel? Mhm. It was it was a lot like that actually. Cuz
1: I got I got was your thought oh I've got to do this again or what was your thought?
0: My thought, I honestly the anticipation um leading up to me holding like the anticipation almost killed me um i (laughs) i was so i i honestly didn't know if i was going like so when i held it in my hands my first thought was it's here and i'm living to see this moment where my first book i am i am holding it in my hands um and i just kind of fell to the floor and my wife was applauding and that kind of thing it was a it was a really sweet moment
1: so it wasn't a is this all there is moment for you. No, it was more of a, thank goodness. I'm,
0: I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ex- I'm able to experience this and uh, um, I can't believe I, you know, there was also this idea of like this disbelief, you know, I, I up until I was holding it in my hands, I wasn't sure this was all real and this was all happening. And what's the next book going to be about? Now that's a good question. Um, given my line of work, um, you know, most of my writing for The Last Word was done on the weekends. Um, um, and so I had to switch from being a writing instructor to to write, to write doing this research over the weekends from my home in Merced. And so I would love to keep writing about some of these topics. I presented on a topic um, uh, at this virtual com- conference of all these movies, all these movies from the 1930s that that were banned basically because of their content of not being kind to Hollywood. So that that's a little project that that I worked on for a conference. And I was thinking that would be cool to turn that into a paper or even a book with each deep history of each, each one of these banned movies. That'd be cool.
1: Have you wrestled with the uh, issue as a lot of people do wrestle with it? The issue of whether you want to write a trade book or another academic book.
0: I am, I have not gotten, I have not gotten that far yet. Um, so for, for the last word, at least I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted it to be published by an academic press because I wanted it to open those professional doors for me. Um, but for, you know, for a book, for another book, I, you know, who knows, right? I think I'll, I'll let the, I'll let the
1: writing decide for me when it happens, but there are any or not any uh, particular non-academic subjects relating to hollywood that you're interested in pursuing?
0: I don't know. I mean, I again I think that 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 project that I did for the London conference was, you know, it, it felt very in line with what I've already done for Oxford and so I mean, I guess to answer your question, I've in a, in a roundabout Way I've I've read a lot of books about Hollywood history that were not from an academic press that I thought were just as um, just as academic and in, in there and just as oh, revelatory.
1: The difference isn't so much in the content; it's the uh, it's the ability or the, the decision to to try and reach a bigger audience. Right, um, that's the big thing. I mean, I was telling you yesterday when we were just chatting that this distinction was made. I think it was in the uh, Times Literary Supplement the latest issue. Somebody said the difference between an academic book and a trade book is that one is an argument and the other is a narrative, Yeah, with trade book being the narrative. Um, yeah. A lot of truth to that. So the question I always try to ask myself is, is there a story to be told here? Not just right. is there something worth talking about by way of argument, but is there a story here? yeah um what about screenplays have you thought about those have you had the interest in doing one i think um it's funny you should ask so i think uh
0: particularly with will hayes i think there needs to be a movie made about will hayes and his time in hollywood i think i think the cohen brothers would be all over that so i don't have any i don't have any screenwriting experience. But sure, if someone came knocking on my door and said, hey, you know, we want you to write
1: a screenplay, yeah, I would do it. <laughs> um, all right. Anything else you want to tell me about the book and its significance to you? Well, I, I
0: mean, just briefly, I want to come back to your distinction between academic and trade. And one thing one of my mentors told me was that um, that I had to remember a book, a book tells a story. And so I guess what I'm hoping is that my book does a little bit of both of what you're describing. It argues, but it also tells a story, um, and it tells the story of the Hollywood novel uh, from from where it began and where it kind of fizzled out. So hopefully, it appeals to more than just academics because of that story that you're describing is just, you know characteristic of of trade books. But
1: well, when did Hayes die? When did he die? Yeah.
0: Oh, geez. I don't know. He's not alive anymore. I know that much. Um,
1: But was he the influence for today's modern ratings of movies? Yes,
0: yes. So the production code that I talked about at the top of the interview, that um, in the 1960s basically gets... gets adapted into the rating system which regulate. notice what it's doing it's regulating who gets to see what movies right so it's regu- it's trying it's still trying to regulate moral content and as some great i can't remember the name oh yeah this movie is not yet rated as that great documentary shows us um who gets to decide what counts as morally acceptable content for which groups right
1: oh there's also the uh, the, the... There's a new movie uh, about Marilyn Monroe, which apparently has been struggling with its rating. Right now it's an NC rating. Oh, really? uh, Which has got a lot of attention. Um, But Hollywood is still, I guess it would always be, much in the news. I mean, we had the recent trial of two movie stars. (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) absolutely. About the other's conduct. Uh, Then we have these rating wars still going on. So it's always going to be with us, I imagine. All right. Your book is called The Last Word. Hollywood novel and the studio system and published by Oxford university press two years ago. Was it two years ago? Yeah. 2021 it says on the uh, title page. All right. Well, you've been a great guest, uh, Justin. I appreciate you, you taking the time to talk to, to me and to our audience and I'll let you go unless there's something else you want to mention.
0: No, thanks, Bill. And yeah, uh, the 2020. Yeah. So for whatever, I I still don't understand this. It came out October 2020, but the copyright started 2021. So hopefully no one plagiarized between (laughs) between its release and, and January 1st, 2021. That's a good point.